0: This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today I want to talk to us about the race that God is calling every one of us to run. The title of my message is this, Run Your Race. Run Your Race. Run Your Race. race. Uh, when I was in high school, I was a football player, but after football would conclude, we would have track and field. Anybody ever play track and field in high school? Now, I wasn't the fastest runner, I gotta, I gotta say. I, I played offensive line and I was a pretty decent runner. I was quick, but I wasn't fast and I certainly wasn't a long distance runner. And so after trying to kind of like do track for a while, uh, my coach very wisely moved me to field, which was shot put and discus. And I got to throw metal objects around and that was a lot more fun. I think I was a lot more suited for that as a kind of a beast of a man. And, uh, but I've always, been, I've always been fascinated with the idea of races and, and runners. Uh, I like Usain Bolt, anybody know who I'm talking about? The Jamaican runner? Uh, Typically, you see him around the Olympics and then the world uh, national titles and all that. And he's just a fast dude. He kind of runs faster than everybody. But more than just kind of the fast runners, I'm really intrigued by long-distance runners. People that actually have devoted their life to learning how to run for long distances at a time. You guys ever watch the Boston Marathon? And you see these Ethiopian runners who are just incredibly skinny and thin and fit, but that just seem to always win year after year. You guys know why they win? It's not because they're from Africa and they just are stronger and faster and and better than everybody. It's actually because they train with an advantage. Say it with me today, train with an advantage. They actually go up into the mountains of Ethiopia and train at 10,000 feet. That's higher than Park City, mind you maybe like the the top peak of of where you can ski up in Park City. And they run there in their off-season pretty much year-round to train for when they run these marathons at sea level. So they have a little bit of an advantage by the time they get to Boston, and that's why you see them win year after year, because they have trained to run the race that they want to run or that they feel compelled to run in such a way to win, in the same way, I believe God wants us to have a tactical or a training advantage in the way that we run our race, our spiritual race. And how many of you guys know it's, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Have you heard that before? You're not running a spiritual sprint, you're running a marathon. The origin of the word marathon has a very interesting story attached to it. I don't know if you guys know this, but there was a man hundreds if not thousands of years ago who was in the Greek army at the time named Pheidippides, Pheidippides, and Pheidippides was a long distance runner. He was a herald in the army whose only real task was to announce or herald the news about what was happening on the battlefront. And so when the Greeks and the Persians had their war, the Greco-Persian war, when they were in conflict, Pheidippides ran from Sparta all the way to this battle at a place called Marathon. That's actually where we get the word Marathon from. And then he would run all the way from Marathon back to Athens. And he did all of this over a course of just like three or four days, 200 miles. Could you imagine running 200 miles in like two to three days? So Pheidippides does this. It turns out the Greeks there at Marathon win the battle. And so he gets the news from the general, and they say, Go back to Athens and report the victory. So he runs 150 miles to 200 miles all the way back to the Athens. And by this time, he's just exhausted. And he, just before he collapses, cries out, Hail, we are the winners! And then he dies. And then he literally dies from exhaustion. Like Pheidippides, we too have been given news to herald. We too have been given a message of victory to announce before we die. <laughs> we call it the gospel. It's the good news of the victory that Jesus has won by way of his death and resurrection from the grave. Having defeated sin and having, having defeated death and having defeated the devil at the cross. And like Pheidippides, we too have been enlisted in an army. We call it the Lord's army. You guys remember that song back in the day? For those of you that grew up in church, I'm in the Lord's army. Yes. Okay. Some of you. Yeah, I like it. (laughs) We're in the Lord's army. We've been given orders to announce the good news of what Jesus has done and what he has won on our behalf. And like Pheidippides, we've been called to run our race in such a way that many will hear the announcement that we are the winners, that many will hear the good news and believe and be saved. That's what every one of us who follows Jesus has been called to do. So today, I wanna talk to us about how God wants us to run this race, knowing that it's not a sprint, but a marathon. Are you with me today? Go to Hebrews chapter 12 and we're going to pick up with verse one, which I believe tells us and informs us of how we are called to run our race. And this is going to be a little bit of a lengthier sermon today, but I want to give you 10 key points. I know Pastor Jason usually preaches two or three, but I'm going to give you 10 key points today that I think will help you run your race. And so we're going to move fast. Number one, We are called to run our race as those who are unhindered. Say unhindered. Let's read it together. Verse one says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. The biggest obstacle to you running and finishing your spiritual race are the things that hinder You The sin that so easily entangles or ensnares you. Now, I don't do a lot of fishing, but when I do, one of the things that I hate most is when my line gets all tangled up. Any of you ever been out on the boat, like in the middle of a lake or out on the ocean, and you're fishing, and all of a sudden, like, you, you, like, catch a piece of bark or some, like, driftwood, and so you bring it in, and you're trying to, like, unhook your, your line, and all of a sudden, it's getting tangled, and it's getting worse and worse and worse, and now, all of a sudden, you got all these knots in your line... And then what do you do? You have to like snip it, you have to cut it off. And in many ways, that's kind of like our spiritual life. The stuff that comes to kind of tie us up in knots, the sin that so easily entangles, the things or the obstacles that hinder us are things that we have got to learn to cut off. Here the writer of Hebrews says, throw them off, get rid of them, discard them. Are you ready? Let them go. Now for some of us, this is our life. With Christ. We get saved. We get all pumped up. We're like, woo, Jesus has saved me. And and I'm ready to like do this thing called following Jesus. And we start running our race, and we're like right out of the starting blocks, and we're excited. Have you ever met people like this? They're just so excited about life. man, Jesus loves me, Jesus died for me. And they're just telling everybody, obnoxiously so, right? Just going, just go doing all they can. And they're all like this. But the problem is that sometimes they're still holding on to sin. And so it's already hindering their run. It's already hindering their race. For some people, uh, lack of faith is a hindrance. For some people, lack of obedience is a hindrance. Uh, You ever say things like, you know, I'll get to that eventually, God, or, you know, maybe soon, right? Even, Even delayed obedience can be a hindrance. And these are the things that I think sometimes impair us as we set out to run our race. But what does the writer of Hebrews encourage us to do? He says, throw it off, cast it away. Paul would say to the Corinthians, put off the old man with all of its old ways and deception and lust and deceit and run the race that God is calling you to run unhindered. So number one, we got to be people that are unhindered, not entangled or snared. That's important. Number two, we are called to run our race as those who persevere. Who persevere. Now, a couple weeks ago, I preached a message called Don't Give Up, and I talked a lot about perseverance, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this. But listen to what verse one goes on to say. And let us run with, let's put it up there, with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Did you guys know that God's already marked out the boundaries of your race? He's already marked out the boundaries of the lane that he wants you to run in. Now some of us, the the, the issues of sin and the hindrances and the things that entangle us, maybe later in life or as we become more mature, don't become such an issue. But where we get caught up is, is that we start trying to step into other people's lanes. We get out of the lane that God's marked, let's go back, let's go back, that God's marked out for us and we start looking at other people's race and we start comparing our pace to the pace of other people. Hey, how come that guy got the promotion and I didn't? Hey, how come their life seems to be going so well and mine's still stuck? Hey, how come I'm still struggling and facing prison and hardship and everybody else is living the good life, right? So what do we do? We start getting our eyes off of Jesus and off of the race we're called to run and now we're drifting because now our eyes are on the other lane and we're stepping in other people's lanes and we're, we're bumping into other people that are called to run, run alongside of us in this race. And we start causing chaos and we start gossiping about, did you see that? Did you can't believe Pastor Jason? I can't believe he went to Israel for 10 days. I know, what a, what a chump, right? Leave his wife and the kids for 10 days all by her son. I mean, Could you believe that guy? <laughs> right, or, or, man, look at that person. Oh, they got what I want or whatever. You know? And so you, just, you start seeing that gossip and that stuff that just kind of creeps up. And next thing you know, you're just out of your lane. You're, you're not even running the race marked out for you. But that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to run our race as those who persevere, who push through obstacles, who don't give up. And some of you right now, you might even feel like you're on the verge of giving up. And I want to tell you, don't give up. Continue to persevere because he who has promised is faithful. Amen. God wants every one of us to persevere, to not turn back, to not give up or give in when times are tough and they will be and they are because God doesn't want us to quit on our race. Instead, he wants us to run so that we can receive a crown, say a crown. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, let's put it on the screen. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So it used to be that way until we started handing out trophies for everybody. But anyways, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. That's a good idea, and they do it to get a crown that will not last—a temporary, you know, uh, plaque on the wall, a plastic trophy that's going to crack and fade. But they do it to get a crown that will last forever. So we, as the people of God, are not just running aimlessly for no good reason. We're running to receive a crown of glory that Jesus has already destined for you to wear. And it's gonna be powerful and it's gonna be awesome and it's gonna tell of what you have persevered through. It's gonna bear the markings of the things that you had to press in and believe God for. The times when you wanted to turn back, Tim, because you thought running that second shop was gonna be too hard. And God said, come on, persevere, my brother. I've got you. That's gonna be on your crown. For those of you that that were in a tough relationship with somebody that hurt you or stabbed your back and you said, you know, I'm going to keep pressing. I'm going to keep persevering. I'm not going to give up because I'm getting a crown. That's a pretty cool thing. And I I think for some of us, we think about crown. It sounds so superficial. But the idea of it is glory. Like he says he will crown you with dignity and glory. Glory. That's what you're going to receive. You're going to receive a glory that will not perish or fade. Something that speaks to the way that you ran your race. And right now, because we live in a culture of comparison, my fear and my concern is that we're comparing ourselves and we're looking at others and we're doing all these things and it's causing us to veer into other people's lanes and to crash and to give up and to get discouraged because we don't have instant results like the person who's been working their butt off for 20 years behind the scenes has done. And then we're mad that we don't have what they have. We got to persevere. We got to keep pressing forward. Number three, we gotta run our races those whose, whose eyes are focused on Jesus, not focused on ourselves. Listen to what verse two goes on to say. Let's put it up there. Verse two says this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He scorned its shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. A big part of, I believe, shedding the, the sin that so easily entangles us is getting our eyes off of ourself and putting them on Jesus. Fixing them. The idea is that they are locked in, just firmly fixed. Not like drifting this way and drifting that way, but firmly fixed. It's amazing what happens when we begin to stop looking at ourselves so much. And one of the things that you know, really impresses me about traveling to other places in the world is, is how joyful people are, and how like, just thankful they are for the life that God's given them, even though they don't have a lot of stuff. You know, just bumping into people that had nothing, even coming across Bedouins that lived out in the desert that were like goat herders just like had this like radiance and this joy about them because they were not worried about what other people have or worried about what they didn't have or worried about where they're not or right. And I think some of our, our cultural narcissism is, is this plague that causes us to think about ourselves all the time. I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. I'm just okay, what am I going to do today? All right, what am I going to eat today? All right, right? And, and we just start off our day just kind of focused on what we're going to do and what, how we feel and what we want. And we have all this marketing to have it your way. And, you know, everything is just tailor-made for your convenience and your comfort. And, and you know, we got Amazon Prime now that can drone things in in one, one hour, you know, and drop. Because we just, we just desire things that are all about us. But... The writer says, put your eyes on Jesus. The old hymn writer would say, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And as you do that, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Strangely dim. I think that's the invitation for us to dim our focus on the things of the world and to clear up our focus on Jesus in heaven, the author and perfecter of our faith. To make him the object and the focus of our attention and faith. And We do this every time we come together for worship. This is why we start with worship. It's not because we're like, oh, like, should the word come first, should worship come first? What do we do? Okay, I guess let's do music first because everybody likes that. No, we do it because in worship, you're aligning your focus on Jesus. You've come in out of the world, maybe you had a rough week or you had a tough, difficult Saturday, you know? And, or maybe you've had a, a lot of difficult Saturdays and you come in on a Sunday and you're like, All right, you know, like, let's see what God has for me. And then in worship, it's like all of a sudden the song elevates your focus to praise him and to give breath to him and to to focus him and to adore him. And next thing you know, you're not even thinking about yourself anymore. That's why the writer would say over and over, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing so, but come together all the more as you see the great day approaching. Why do we do that? Why do we emphasize that? because we know that in worship, our hearts become realigned to focus our eyes on Christ. Number four, we run our race as those who are sons and daughters, not orphans or outsiders. Verse four, Let's put it up there. It says this, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Thank you, Jesus. And have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says this, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you or corrects you because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And he chastens everyone that he accepts as a son or as a daughter. Therefore, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. How does God go about dealing with our identity crisis as sons and daughters, as a loving father who adopts us into his family. Romans eight says that we have received the spirit of sonship, that we no longer are outsiders, we're no longer Gentiles, we are sons and daughters of God. We cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit gives life to us and brings us into his family, adopts us in, takes us from being orphans and outsiders and puts us at his head, table of grace. That's how God wants to deal with our identity crisis. And here's what it means. It means that we, we no longer belong to ourselves, we belong to him. And we have access to him as sons and daughters. When we come together, we do so as family. That's why we talk about being the family of God. We're not here just to spectate a show. We're not here just to hear the words of a man. No, we are here to participate in this thing called life as family and that's why we're launching community groups because we know that family happens not just on the weekend but it happens throughout the week and there are needs in this church and there are needs in your life and there are things that you're going through that you've been trying to hold on to alone by yourself and you can't because God says it's not good for a man to be alone it's not good for a woman to be alone it's not the Hebrew word is tov it's not good meaning it doesn't function doesn't work it's like you're trying to do life and it doesn't work and you're like why am i sad why am i depressed why do i feel alone because you need to open your life to somebody you need to bring people into your world into your home into your heart and let other people see what you're going through because the truth is they're probably going through it as well but here's my concern a lot of us we, we like hiding we like our anonymity we like to slip into church. We like to slip out. We like to go to bigger churches where we can slip in and slip out because no one will know us. No one will be able to confront us, keep us accountable. Right? We just come in, yeah, yeah, Jesus, all right. And then we go out and we live our life and do whatever we want. And many of you, and, and for many people that we know, that no one knows what's going on in their life. It's like, wh- what are they doing? They're spiritual lone rangers out there just trying to like fight this battle, run this race all by themselves. Friends, you are not designed to run it by yourself. You need, you need brothers and sisters. You need elders and people that have wisdom. You need, you need people that have experience that have gone through what you've gone through. And that's the the biggest advice I can give you millennials and Gen Zers is like, don't listen to your peers. They are dumb. They haven't gone through anything and you're trying to go to them for advice. And then you wonder why you're both miserable. Go to some of these people with older grayer hair in our church and say, show me how to run a business, Kurt. Show me how to run a business, Tim. How do you do what you do? How did you get from where you are here, where you are there? What did you do when like you were going through marriage problems and, and you hit an impasse and you just couldn't stop arguing? How, how did you figure out how to raise those kids? You know, you've had a bunch and now you've got grandkids. So how's that going in? And right, so like that is the point of why we come together as a church so we can lean on each other and do life together as sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters, amen? So let me encourage you. Or let me ask you, do you see yourself as a son or a daughter, or do you see yourself still as an orphan or an outsider in the church? Why we emphasize next steps is because we want to help you move from the outside to come in to a family that loves you. And you're like, oh, but what what if I get hurt? Listen, there is no perfect church, there is no perfect family. We got warts. We got scars. We got strengths. We got weaknesses. But if you're still waiting for this perfect little ideal thing, I'm telling you, it ain't going to happen until Jesus comes and establishes his millennial kingdom on the earth. And that might be a while. Until then, we come together as family. We get real. We get honest. We get true. And you know, there's power in that. There's power when we let down our walls. There's power when we shake up the ground of all of our religion and let people see us for who we really are. And I just want to encourage you these next few weeks, you know, as we launch these groups, as as people reach out to you and invite you to come, or as you go to sign up and get involved, do so as a son, do so as a daughter. You belong in this place. You belong here. This is not a place where we just want to like show up and show off and then like, Hey, see you later. See you next. No, we want you to be in a family. We want you to be in a family. The beauty of the gospel is that all of us who were once orphans and outsiders have now been made righteous heirs through Christ Jesus. We now have a, tab- a place at the table because of his grace and his mercy that he's so abundantly lavished on us. Number five, we run our race as those who are strong and healthy, not burdened and broken. Verse 12 says this, therefore, let's put it up there, therefore strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees, church, and make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Why does God want us to be strong and courageous so that we can be a strength to others? Why does God want us to be healthy in our bodies so that we can minister healing and health To others. Notice the order strengthen your arms and your weak knees so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. The reason God wants us to be both spiritually and physically strong and healthy is not so that we can show off on Instagram or look great in photos. The real reason is because He wants us to be able to help other people. And you can't help anybody if your life is a mess, if you're burdened and broken. That's why he says, you've got to make level paths for your feet. You've got to strengthen your feeble arms. He doesn't say God will do it. He says, you do it. Strengthen your arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet. You do these things so that those that are disabled and lame can be healed. It is the heart of God for us to walk in healing. And I'm not saying that means that You're not going to have to struggle sometimes or persevere through hardship or disease or whatever. But what I'm saying is that in your spirit, in your soul, he wants you to prosper and to be in health so that your soul can prosper and be in health so that as you minister to people, you can minister life. You can minister healing. You can minister strength. You can't help somebody if you're still laying down in a hospital bed. And if you need time to lay down in a hospital bed that is okay it's okay sometimes to not be okay it's some it's okay to sometimes say help me stick the iv in i'm i'm dehydrated spiritually i'm sick emotionally i need help that's why we pray for people we don't want to do it just here at the front we're going to do it in community groups as well but the but the point is this is that You can't help anybody if you need help, and if you need a season to just lay down and rest, and you've just come to this church and you're like, hey, I've been burdened and I've been broken and I need healing, please sit down and receive the healing of God. But there's gonna come a time where God's gonna say, it's time to get up out of that bed and walk. It's time to get up and walk, because I got a job for you, because I got ministry for you, because I got a mission and a mandate for your life, and your healing is connected to other people getting healed. Your becoming strong in your physical body and in your spiritual body and in your mind and in your soul is connected to other people becoming strong and healthy in theirs. That's what he wants for this church. Amen. At Courageous Church, we like to say it this way. We want to be a place for the broken, but not a broken place. We want to be a place for the broken where people can come in with their hurts and their addictions and find hope and find healing and find life in the name of Jesus. Oh, I just prophesy that over our church. Just declare that over this house. God, that we would be a place for broken people but not a broken place. People would find health and wholeness and restoration for their marriages, for their mind, for their soul. Just speak that in the name of Jesus over us today, church. Number six. We run our race as those who are peaceful and holy, not contentious or divisive. Verse 14 goes on to say this. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Not with someone, not with some people, not with just those that are like you or that look like you or think like you or vote like you or like the things you like, but with everyone. Make every effort, church, to do this, especially in election year 2024. Make every effort to live in peace with your frustrated neighbors who put signs out on their lawns that tick you off. Come on, somebody. (laughs) And to be holy, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This one, I think, kind of speaks for itself, but I want to say this. Our world could use more peacemakers. Our world could use more peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. He didn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. To make peace requires sacrifice. To make peace requires reconciliation. To make peace costs you something. It costs you intentional effort. That's why the writer says, make every effort to do this, to live in peace with everyone. And isn't it interesting that he pairs peace with holiness? Some of you, you don't have peace right now. And some of you, like, just even your sleep is tormented. And as a result, you're just, you just feel frustrated. or You're, you're just kind of walking around angry all the time. You guys remember that Snickers commercial back in the day? You're not yourself when you're hungry. That's me. I, I get hangry. Anybody else get hangry? Just kind of get angry and contentious when you haven't had food. You're like, man, I haven't had a double-double in like 10 days because I've been in Israel, you know, living off hummus and bread. I'm mad. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but anybody, anybody feel that way? Sometimes we don't have peace because we're angry. We're holding on. And Candace prayed for us during worship earlier, and I, just, I felt like the Spirit of the Lord says, some of you need to forgive. And the reason why you're angry is because you're holding on to unforgiveness. Someone did you wrong. Someone made you mad. Someone ticked you off, someone hurts you, and as a result, you're just walking around angry. Can I tell you like the Snickers commercial would tell you, you're not yourself when you're angry. You're not yourself when you're divisive. You're not yourself when you're being contentious. That's not the way God created you. That's not the life that He created you for. No. He created you to walk in peace and holiness. As it turns out, being holy leads to better vision because it allows you to see the Lord as he is high and exalted where the train of his robe fills the temple. You know what that speaks to? It speaks to the governance of God over all things. It means that God is in control yes, even in the year of an election. Even when things don't turn out the way you want, God is in control and if his train fills the temple and fills the heavens and he has control over all things that means he can have control over your situation which means you don't have to fret or worry or be anxious for anything but in everything and all things through prayer and supplication, your request to God and know that he cares for you. Know that he has mercy for you. Know that he can answer your prayer and, and bring you to a place of peace that surpasses all understanding so that your heart and your mind are guarded in Christ Jesus. Come on, somebody. That's what he wants for us, church. Number seven. We run our race as those who are gracious and forgiving, not prideful or bitter. Verse 15 says it this way. See to it that no one, put it up there, Liam, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Question time. How does one fall short of the grace of God? How do people fall short of the grace of God? Most people read this and they think it has to do with messing up too many times. Can I tell you today? That ain't it. There's no amount of mistakes that God can't give you grace for. Paul says, I know that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Some even read this to mean that falling short of the grace of God means they came close, (laughs) but not close enough to experience God's grace. That's not what it means either. James tells us that God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. You wanna know how you fall short of the grace of God? Pride. Having a prideful or a, a haughty spirit Pride says, I don't need the grace of God. I got it all taken care of. I can do it my way on my terms. Pride says, I don't need to admit my mistakes because I'm never wrong. Pride is a killer. Pride is a killer. It kills relationships. It kills potential. It kills purpose. And it's the actually only thing that God will actively resist in your life. I've got some friends, and I won't say who they are, but... They just get caught up in this cycle of pride where I mean, they're so proud of all the work they're doing, all the things they're doing, all the things, that, but then they're always frustrated by how resisted they are, how it seems like life is always difficult and tough and like can't get the breakthrough and all that. And it might just be that they've allowed pride to take over their heart. This is why the prideful tend to fall short of God's grace. It's not those who mess up and admit their mistake and repent, but rather those who are unwilling to do so. This is why Jesus had such a hard time with with the religious leaders in his community because they let pride dictate and control their heart. This is why he was so harsh with the Pharisees because they would rarely admit that they were ever wrong or rarely repent. And as a result, many of them fell short of the grace of God. And then notice the statement that the writer of Hebrews makes directly after it. See to it that no bitter root. Let's put it up there. There it is. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. God doesn't want you to be caught up in pride. He doesn't want you to be bitter either. Bitterness is also a killer. It grows like a toxic root that leads to bitter tasting fruit and a diseased soul. You ever tasted rotten fruit? Like something that's just kind of bitter. It's not even ripe. It's just like, oh, What's your reaction? You just kind of spit it out of your mouth, right? Or swallow it and then pay the price later. Bitterness is like this, this toxic, evil root that defiles your soul. And I, and I hope I'm not talking to anybody in this room, but if I am, the way you deal with a bitter soul is through forgiveness. Celebrating God's grace in the life of another person. My concern for many of us is that we are operating from a place of pride and bitterness and we don't even know it. And the truth is, hurt people are always gonna hurt people. Truth is, we need to extend grace and we need to forgive, amen? Number eight, we run a race as those who are sexually faithful. Oh, snap, he went there. Verse 16, here's what it says. Put it up there, Liam see to it that no one is sexually immoral. Now, this used to be pretty self-explanatory, but nowadays it seems like people always wanna push the envelope. They wanna know where the line is so they can get as close to it as possible without crossing it. But the problem is that the line keeps moving. And I think the issues that we're facing today in our culture have to do with how people keep redefining what sex is for and what it's all about. People keep defining or redefining what constitutes morality or immorality, which means as the people of God, we've gotta understand what God has revealed about what he wants for our lives, sexually speaking. Because God designed us as sexual beings, can I get an amen? Amen. And because God has designed us as sexual beings, he actually has a design and a purpose and a plan for our sexuality, for how it works, best in our life for how it's supposed to flourish. And in case you're not sure what that is, let me spell it out for you. Let me give it to you plain and simple. Here's what Jesus said. A man leaves his father and his mother and he becomes one with his wife. There it is. It's the best definition of sexuality I can give you from the words of Jesus. No confusion. Now, I'm not here to to blame or shame anybody. Uh, For any choices they've made, but this is God's design for our sexuality between a man and woman in the covenant of marriage. So if you're single, God bless you in your singleness. If you're married, God bless you in your marriedness. And if you've screwed it up, or you've been through a divorce, or you've had someone abuse you or even mistreat you sexually, God bless you where you are today. Because the truth is, every single one of us is born into this world with a broken sexuality marred by sin. And here's the good news I want to give you. God can heal it. God can transform it. God can renew it. He can heal even what sin is distorted and he can restore even what the enemy has tried to steal or destroy or abuse or pervert or corrupt in your life. Amen. So we've got to be a people that learn how to put off sexual immorality. And, and, and I'm not just speaking to us as a pastor. I'm speaking to, to us as somebody that's had to wrestle through this as a man. Right? As a father with my kids. The stuff that they're being exposed to and the stuff that they're going through today is far worse than anything that I had to deal with when I was a young teenager. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You guys seen the movie Sound of Freedom? Some of you are like, I'm really struggling with porn. Go watch that movie and see what you're contributing to. Let God use it as a catalyst to break the cycle of that in your life. That was for free. So we got to put off sexual morality, the writer of Hebrews says, and we've got to guard our hearts and our marriages against it, you guys. I just got to say this before we move on. Entertainment is insidious. It's indoctrinating insidious lies by what we watch and what we accept and what we entertain and embrace. And we've got to guard our hearts and our minds. I'm not talking about becoming legalistic. I'm I'm talking about being spirit led when you feel like something you're watching is grieving to the Spirit of God that came to set you free from the addiction to sexual morality and porn and all these things, maybe it's best for you to turn it off. And if you still can't do that, maybe it's best for you to punt it across the room. And if you still can't do that, maybe it's best for you to talk to somebody about it and open up your heart and say, hey, this is a real struggle, help me out. And get together with somebody and start praying and start going after it. That's also for free. Number nine. We run our race as those who love and trust God. We're rounding the corner here, team. Here we go. We run our race as those who love and trust God, not as those who are godless. See to it that no one is godless like Esau. Let's put that verse up there. That no one is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought the blessing with tears He could not change what he had done. Esau, the bottom line is, didn't love or trust God, and it was evidenced in the way that he had no value for the things of God in his life, including his own inheritance, which is why he sold it to his brother Jacob. Later on, when he came to his senses, it was sadly too late for him. And this is meant to be a cautionary tale for many of us. And the point I think the writer wants us to understand as it pertains to us running our race is that we can't live life godlessly, We certainly can't run the race God has called us to run if we don't trust God with the way that we're called to run it. And in this way, this is why the scripture says that Esau was godless. He did things his own way rather than God's way. Can I encourage you? Do things God's way. Do things God's way. You'll save yourself a whole lot of hurt and headache and you'll save yourself from stress and anxiety, and you'll save yourself from shame and condemnation, and you'll you'll save yourself, maybe shave yourself, you'll save yourself from the distractions that are meant to thwart you from God's purpose in your life, amen? And finally today, to sum it all up for us, how are we supposed to run our race number 10? As victors, slow it up there, Liam. As victors, as more, than what the Bible calls conquerors in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the victorious one. He's the one that won the battle over sin and death and the devil. He's the one that conquered everything that you and I will ever face in this world, which is why we are called to be filled with his spirit, which is why we are called to yield and surrender our lives to him. As I said at the start of my message, like Pheidippides, we have a victory to announce to the world. We have a victory to declare that Jesus has won and he's inviting us to run our race in such a way that those words are forever inscripted upon our hearts. As Phidippides declared these words with his last dying breath, I want to declare them to you one more time today. We are the winners. Beloved, that's how God wants you to run your race. As those who are already on the winning side. As those that know that there's no weapon formed against you that can prosper, as those that know that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, as those who know that you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, I want to encourage you in your faith today. Let's run our race like winners do, let's run our race like champions, courageous church, and let's run our race to win.